0: My question uh, this morning is for both the kids and the adults in the church because it's a it's a question that applies to both, and so I'm going to ask it to both. So, kids, uh, you got to share your time with the the ups this morning. Uh, but my question uh, for you all this morning is: Who here has ever been bored in church before? It's okay. Raise your hand. Who here has ever been bored in church before? May make it a little bit more safer question, because of course you've never been bored in this church before, right? Uh, Who here has ever been bored in any church before, right? Any church experience before? Raise your hand. That's most of us. Uh, uh, If I were to be honest with you, I'd raise my hand. I've been bored in church before. I've been bored in our church before, okay? Uh, So you you can be honest about that. Uh, My guess is that anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time, has at some point experienced some measure of boredom in church before. And so my next question is, why are we sometimes bored in church? Okay. Other than my preaching, let me go ahead and clear the table and take that one off for you. Other than boring preaching, what are some of the things that cause us to be bored in church? Anybody got ideas, willing to share them? Yeah the sermon. I already said that when well, you want to rub it in on me, Miles. Okay, any other ones? Yeah. Down on the, the what? Sitting down, the sitting down for real long? Yeah. yeah, church lasts a long time sometimes, doesn't it? Anything else? Any other ones? Yeah. I don't have any. No other guesses. That's okay. One one more in the back in the balcony. There's nothing to do. Nothing to do. Listen, there are all kinds of reasons. I could add some more reasons to you, right? Church is a long time. It doesn't feel relevant to my life. I don't understand what they're talking about. I might have forgotten to get a kid's activity sheet on the way in so that there's always something to do. Uh, whatever the reason you might uh, you might choose, there could be all kinds of reasons why we might end up bored in church. But ultimately, I believe that most of these are surface level issues that are pointing to Something deeper and heart level in our lives that causes us to be bored, which we're going to be talking about this morning. Before we get to that, let me ask you two more important questions. You don't have to raise your hand for these, I just want you to, to contemplate them and consider them in your heart. Have you ever desired for there to be more to your worship experience? More joy? More passion, more sense of intimate and meaningful connection with the Lord. If you do, and I hope that we'd all answer yes to that question. But if you do, and the final question for us this morning is, how do we get that? How do we experience the Lord in more meaningful and significant and heartfelt ways in our lives? This morning, we're looking at a story where there are two different characters who respond to Jesus in two very different ways because of two very different reasons. One models for us a beautiful devotion that we all desire to experience. The other exhibits a bored dullness that we can probably too often relate with. And in this passage, Jesus explains to us the difference between the two characters' responses and the effect that their stories can have on our lives. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it uh, with me to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. And let's consider together what Jesus uh, has to say about how we can encounter him in more meaningful and worshipful ways. First, I want to to set the context for this story for us because it is a bit unusual that this all takes place at a dinner that one of the Pharisees named Simon is hosting at his house. Now, Pharisees were the religious and social elites of their days, so this would have likely been a a fairly highbrow affair. And dinner parties in these days operated a bit differently than they do in our days because in ancient cultures, in this ancient culture, this Jewish culture, meals like this were often a public event. And so some guests were invited and they would have reclined around the table. They'd have a space there for them. They they would participate in the meal. They would be a part of the conversation. And Jesus was one of these invited guests. But throughout the meal, the house would, would remain open to the public as well. And so even if you weren't an invited guest, you could still enter in and observe what was going on Um, at the dinner. You could listen in on the conversation that was taking place. And that's why this unnamed woman, uh, the third main character in the story, who is only described to us as a woman of the city and a sinner. That's why she was present and had access to Jesus the way that she did. She had learned that Jesus was at this meal, and so she showed up also in order to be able to encounter him. So those are the main characters involved in this story and the setting in which they find themselves. And what I want to highlight uh, are the two very different responses that these main characters have uh, to Jesus, encountering Jesus, and and the reason for these different responses. Now, the first response that Jesus receives at this dinner is from Simon the Pharisee, who was hosting the meal. And we're told about Simon's response to Jesus uh, late in this story, really as a recap of what uh, didn't happen when Jesus originally arrived at the dinner. Starting in verse 44 and following, Jesus says to Simon, when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, you gave me no kiss, and you did not anoint my head with oil. And what Jesus is highlighting here is that when he arrived in Simon's home, Simon failed to offer to him even the most basic of the culturally expected acts of greeting that an honored guest would receive. Uh, To to provide water for a guest's feet, a kiss of greeting either on the hand or on the head, and the anointing of of olive oil uh, were deeply ingrained customs in ancient Israel. They would have been offered to any and every guest who entered into your home. And so it's practically impossible uh, that Simon simply forgot to greet Jesus in this way. Instead, it was almost certainly uh, an intended slight to Jesus' honor. And it makes sense why Simon would have done this. At this point in the story, the Pharisees were already at odds with Jesus. Their amazement at him but when he was a 12-year-old boy asking questions in the temple had long since passed. More recently, due to his teaching that challenged the Pharisees' authority and his healings that had challenged the Pharisees' laws, the leaders of Israel were already turning on Jesus. In chapter 4, they, uh, the Pharisees had sought to throw Jesus off of a cliff for a word that he had spoken against them. In chapter 5, they were questioning Jesus' ministry and the source of His power and the company that He kept with tax collectors and sinners. In chapter 6, they were watching Him closely, looking for reasons to accuse Him and, and angrily discussing what actions they might take in order to be able to deal with Him. At every turn, the Pharisees were watching Jesus with a skeptical eye, engaging Jesus with a doubting mind, And encountering Jesus with a hardened heart. And what that produced, in Simon at least, as he hosted Jesus at this dinner, was a a formalized dismissiveness and dishonoring of Jesus. He had no passion about Jesus' presence with him. He had no ear of eagerness to hear what Jesus would have to say. He had no musing mind to contemplate what Jesus might share. He had no hopeful heart to experience what Jesus might do. Simon was dispassionate towards, unimpressed with, and generally dismissive of Jesus. And I wonder if that's ever the way that we engage with the Lord. Hopefully without the outright hostility of the Pharisees. But do you ever come to worship taking for granted the profound reality of Jesus' presence here with us? Do you ever come into the presence of Jesus unthoughtfully, disregarding the honor that is due His name? Do you ever come to share this table with Him, more consumed with your life than with His life? Do you ever come into the presence of Jesus disinterested in what He might have to say to you? Expecting little to nothing of what He might want to do among you. Doubtful that there is anything that He could actually do within you. If we ever come into the presence of the Lord with that heart, with those mindsets, with those sentiments, then we will be bored in our worship. It won't matter how good the music is, how profound the preaching, how beautiful the liturgy if we come questioning Jesus or skeptical of Jesus or doubting Jesus or unimpressed with Jesus or unexpectant of Jesus, then we're going to be dispassionate towards Jesus. This was the response of Simon and of the Pharisees throughout the Scriptures. And it has been the response of much of the elite and the well-educated and the well-resourced and the religiously formal Of society throughout history. And if we're not careful. It can be us as well. But it doesn't have to be. Because there's a second response in this story. That is anything but dispassionate. And disinterested in Jesus and his presence. The second response is from the unnamed sinful woman of the city who wasn't even invited to the meal, but showed up anyway because she was eager to see Jesus. And when she saw him, she did not hold back. We read in verse 37 and following that when this woman encountered Jesus, she began weeping. Weeping so much that her tears wet Jesus's feet. And once his feet were wet, finally having been rinsed, she then began to wipe them with her hair. She then kissed his feet, and we later learned that she continued kissing them. She wouldn't stop kissing them. And finally, she anointed his feet with an expensive ointment. And while all of that is is obviously a more impassioned response to Jesus than what Simon exhibited, it's when we begin to peel the curtain back on those acts just a little bit that we can begin to see just how passionate a response to Jesus this actually was. Because in many ways, this woman's response was almost scandalous. Take, for instance, the wiping of Jesus' feet with her hair. This would have been a shocking act to everyone who witnessed it. Because according to the customs of this time, a woman letting down her hair in the presence of a man was the equivalent of beginning to undress in front of him. A woman did this in front of no one except for her husband. In fact, according to their laws, a woman could be divorced for letting down her hair in the presence of a man other than her husband. It was basically considered an erotic act. And it would have been completely scandalous. If it were not so completely worshipful. And then there was the anointing with ointment from the alabaster jar. In Matthew's account of this story, we're told that this ointment was expensive and could have been sold for a great deal of money. In Mark's telling of this event, we're told that it was worth over 300 denarii, which was a full year's worth of wages. Pouring out that costly of anointment on Jesus' feet would have been seen as completely wasteful if it were not so completely beautiful in all that it represented. When given the chance to encounter Jesus, this woman held nothing back, she gave no regard to her reputation and what people thought of her. She gave no regard to the social norms and customs and whether or not it would be appropriate or acceptable to approach Jesus in this way. She held nothing back in the exuberance of her devotion or in the extravagance of her offering. Do you ever worship Jesus like that? Even just in your inner being? Have you ever wished that you could? What causes someone to do that? What leads to such heartfelt, passionate, intimate, loving, vulnerable, meaningful, free, real worship? Where you're unhindered by the circumstances in which you find yourself or the company that surrounds you. Where there's nothing in the world that matters. Except for you and Jesus And having this opportunity to express your great devotion to Him. If we ever came to worship with that heart, with that devotion, with that commitment, with that passion, then we would never be bored in our worship. It wouldn't matter how bad the music was, or how poor the preaching, or how rote the liturgy if we come desperately seeking for Jesus and humbled to be in His presence and eager to express our devotion to Him, we are going to be filled with passion in our worship of Him. In stark contrast to Simon's cold, dispassionate and ungracious response to Jesus, this woman exhibited the exact opposite. Two different people Two different responses to Jesus. What's the difference? What makes one so closed and one so close? What makes one so bored by Jesus and the other so bound to Jesus? What is it that makes great worship? To highlight and explain these two different responses... Jesus tells them a parable. He says to them in verse 40 and following that I have something to say to you. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. The point that Jesus is making in this parable is that if you know you have a great debt that has been graciously forgiven, then you will exhibit a great love in response. A great debt, greatly forgiven, leads to great worship. On the other hand, if you think that the debt that you have been forgiven of is relatively insignificant, then your appreciation of that forgiveness will be relatively insignificant. And that love that you exhibit as a result of that forgiveness will be insignificant as well. A small debt which only requires a small amount of forgiveness, leads to small worship. Or having a sense of no debt that requires no need for forgiveness leads to no worship. And then throughout the rest of the story, Jesus goes on to demonstrate the effect of this parable by comparing and contrasting the responses that he had received from Simon and from the sinful woman. And Jesus concludes by saying that this woman's great acts of great love are signs that she knew she had been forgiven of a great deal, but that anyone who showed only a little amount of love must have thought that they only needed to be forgiven of very little. And in this parable that Jesus tells, and in these examples that are highlighted for us, Jesus really gives to us a blueprint for how to experience great, rich, meaningful, passionate worship in our lives. Awareness of great debt and appreciation for great forgiveness will always lead to great expressions of love and worship. And all of this ought to cause us to ask ourselves the question, are we aware of our great debt and of God's great forgiveness in our lives? Do you really know how great the offense of your sin is? And how much Jesus paid in order to forgive you of it? This story is telling us that we will never experience truly rich worship until we do. And it's not just this story that makes that point. We actually see this reality throughout all of the scriptures. From the Old Testament to the New Testament to the future pictures of worship in heaven. They are always first pointing us back to our sin and our need for God and His deliverance. And then they are reminding us of what God has done to save us in order that we might appreciate who God is and what he has done. In the Old Testament, we see this in the repeated call for Israel to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. That Israel's very identity as the people of God was rooted in the fact that they had to be delivered from their bondage. They are always called to look back and remember That reality and God's great work of deliverance on their behalf. In the New Testament, it's the same. In almost every letter that Paul writes to the churches, there is a portion of the letter where he points back to the way that we were, to the sins that had previously enslaved us. And then he highlights that it is from that enslavement to to sin that Christ has set us free. Paul's point is that we can't appreciate the freedom that we have in Christ until we understand what we've been set free from. This has always been the case. And it always will be the case. Even when we get to heaven where there is no more sin and there is no more brokenness. Where there is no more anything else from which we need to be delivered. Yet even there our worship will still be centered around our former sinfulness and the forgiveness that we have received through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We see this in Revelation chapter 7 in the picture of the throne room of heaven where the crowds of worshipers are crying out, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. What we see in that picture is that we will forever be giving praise to our God who has saved us and to the Lamb who died for us, for our sins. The point is simply this. We can't appreciate where God has brought us to if we don't remember where God has brought us from. We will never be able to really love and worship Jesus until we realize how desperately we need Him. And all of that really only makes sense. Because if you think about it, if you don't know that you're sick, then you'll never seek the healing that you need. But if you know that you are desperately sick, then you will tirelessly search for the cure to your illness and you'll be fully devoted to the doctor that can heal you. Or if you don't know how unclean you are, then you'll never worry about the ugliness of the stain that blots your soul. But if you are aware of the filth of your sin and the infestation that it brings to your life, then you will be fully devoted to the one who can wash you clean. This is just the way that we work. If you know that you had a heart of stone, but that Jesus gave you a new heart, you'll worship him for it. If you know that you were guilty but that Jesus made you innocent, you will worship him for it. If you know that you deserved judgment but that Jesus bore that punishment in your place, you will worship him for it. If you know that you had a debt but that Jesus paid it for you, you will worship him for it. If you know that your situation was helpless but that Jesus has brought you help, you will worship him for it. If you know that you were hopeless but that Jesus has given you hope, you will worship him for it you know that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, but that God has made you alive in Christ Jesus, you will worship him for it. And you will continue to worship him for it for the rest of your life and for all of eternity. What this passage is telling us is that we will love God to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of his grace to forgive them. If you know your great sin and God's greater forgiveness, then you will be a great worshiper. To that end... And to help us in that aim, I want to commend to you Psalm 103, which was our Old Testament reading for this morning. It opens in the first few verses by reminding us of this reality and by almost forcing us to practice this discipline of remembering. It begins this way. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all of your iniquities. Who heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. This psalm calls us to worship and to praise with all that is within us by remembering all that God has done for us in his forgiveness and in his healing and in his redemptive work. Those three verses, the beginning of Psalm 103, would be great ones to memorize or to post around your house so that you're reminded of them over and over and over again. Listen, I'll be the first person to confess that church can sometimes be boring. Miles, sermons can sometimes be boring. This sermon was probably boring, right? But the news that our debt has been paid, that we've been forgiven, that we are loved. Despite all of our sin, that news is never boring. That reality never grows old. That truth never loses its impact. And it should cause us to experience meaningful and significant and rich and free praise and worship every time that we remember it. For God's glory and for our good.